I'm Charlie Hipwood, CEO of Mass Ventures. And I'm Stacy Swider, an investor at Mass Ventures. And we welcome you to the Fundable Founder, where we'll be exploring relevant topics for technology entrepreneurs to help them succeed in raising capital and in growing their businesses. As a founder who started and ran three companies, I didn't know what I didn't know when I first set out. <laughs> but you eventually figured things out, right? For the most part, through trial and error and mentorship. But now as a VC, I'm frequently advising entrepreneurs on the same topics. So Stacy and I are here to share that earned wisdom with you, along with the experts that we interview on a variety of subjects. We are. The roadmap to a successful startup is at your fingertips. So turn up the volume and grab the keys to success for your fundable founder journey. Hi, welcome back. This is Stacy with Mass Ventures. I'm here with Rick Schwartfeger, who is the CEO of Leading Edge Equipment Technology, a company that makes silicon wafers. But formally, um, from 2016 to 2020, Rick was the program director um, of an SBIR, of SBIR programs. Rick, you can explain it, at the National Science Foundation at NSF, which is um, one of my favorite funding bodies for SBIRs for a host of reasons. Um, Rick, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Stacy, and I appreciate you having me on. Uh, again, my name is Rick Schwartfeger, and as the CEO of Leading Edge Equipment Technologies, I'm trying to help develop a, a way to remove the reliance on foreign supply chains in our solar photovoltaics market. Um, I have a background in physics and material science. I've been doing solar energy research and other optical crystal materials research since the late 1980s and uh, have had a career both in government and, and the private sector. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about some of my past experience at NSF and the SKR program today. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. Our careers have crossed. I was a crystal grower too, but we didn't meet until about last year. Um, so I'm just going to dive right into it. This is a really fascinating opportunity to get the point of view of a, an SBIR director at the federal level. Um, what is um, the number one thing that you guys look for in an SBIR proposal? So let me start off by saying these are my opinions as a private sector person now and not an official NSF response of any kind. Um, but I will say um, the NSF uh, program directors, I think, will mirror a lot of these sentiments and a lot of this actually printed on their website and you can find it directly. But number one, I think most important thing that we looked for when I was there the, for proposals was the really revolutionary nature of, uh, of the innovation that was being proposed. Oftentimes, it's easy to get excited about um, a new technology or a new app or a new way to make uh, something that's, you know, 5% cheaper, 5% faster, 5% better. Those weren't really the projects that, that got the most attention at NSF. It was really important to show that truly step change innovation that could change the world if it worked. And, and even though it was risky and not guaranteed to work, if it did work, it was going to have a major impact in the sector. So revolutionary, not evolutionary, as you guys exactly. say, and having that societal impact as well. So how are how how does judging work there? What is the inner workings? So the the there are a large pool of reviewers out there, both um, from NSF past reviewers in the academic and SBIR sectors, as well as reviewers that the program directors would would hand recruit and and. You know, I, I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn trying to find recruiters. I would go to conferences 
find recruiters. I was made fun of at NSF in a friendly way because I found a recruiter at 2 a.m. in the morning on uh, on the Las Vegas Strip one time uh, <laughs> at, a, at the, the Consumer Electronics Show. Um, we had a, a late night um, get together with a few attendees there, and I walked out of the out of the restaurant and onto the sidewalk. And my mantra has always been, "Just say hello when you see someone." And and I walked kind of kind of merged onto the sidewalk with this person, and I just said hello, and we started talking. And I was actively trying to find a recruiter that knew something about semiconductor design um, at the chip scale, so that I could put them on my semiconductor review panel. This person was a semiconductor was a chip designer for um i think it was for nvidia or, or one of the big um video chip companies and it just just is the way i found that reviewer so i found reviewers in a lot of interesting places but the point is um you have to have that reviewer pool with really qualified people that understand both how to evaluate if something really is revolutionary and how to determine if it has commercial impact if it is made to work and, and also some, uh, like you said, some um, societal benefit in the end. But there are really two ways that NSF um, could judge um, proposals. One of them is called an ad hoc review process, where the proposal would be sent to three independent reviewers, or sometimes even more. Uh, and those reviewers would review the proposal on their own, um, on their own time, but within some time limit of a couple of weeks, typically. And they would send the written review back to NSF. And then the program director would, would look at those written reviews and, and make their evaluations and, and proceed from there. The other method was a panel review process where a whole cluster of proposals, uh, maybe you know sometimes as many as 10 or 15 or 20 proposals would be clustered into a panel sent to reviewers. Each reviewer would review maybe half a dozen or more proposals. And then the whole panel would get together either live or on Zoom, uh, obviously now mostly on Zoom and discuss each proposal. Um, yeah, every proposal had at least two, three people reviewing them, sometimes more, and they would have a very, um, sometimes very energetic discussion on the, the merits of the proposal. And again, looking at those three main criteria, the revolutionary nature of the innovation uh, and, and how risky it is, um, the societal impact, uh, if it is made to work, will it really benefit society? So should taxpayers really support this project? And when it is made to work or if it is made to work, can you actually create a business on it? You know, is there a is there a market out there? Has the has the principal investigator actually gone out and talked to potential um, uh, customers? Have they done the customer discovery process to really understand the market, understand the pain points that their customers might be seeing, and figure out if they solve those pain points? All those are taken into account in the review, um, but not at NSF, not in a, any um, rigid point structure. Um, but, um, you know, paragraphs of, of evaluation by the reviewer uh, and then an overall rating of if the proposal is um, poor, fair, good, um, excellent or, or superb kind of one to five sort of uh, rating scale. That is really interesting. Are the reviewers tend to be mostly academics or mostly commercial backgrounds or a mix? Uh, so it's typically a mix, and the the reason it's a mix is because often you need an academic reviewer to really understand the deep technology. Some of these proposals, uh, the program directors, I'll just say, all the program directors are highly qualified in their fields. Most of them now are former entrepreneurs, um, and uh, they all have PhDs uh, in their fields. But there are, as you know, you know, plenty of things that can be really difficult and challenging to understand even within a field if you're not an expert in that particular area. So academics can fill that void and, and really understand the, the deep technical nature to help the, 
the level of impact, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And or the level also, of significance. Yeah. That's that's right. Um, and then we count on um, other reviewers. Typically, we'll have we'll have other entrepreneurs. Um, we'll have people from industry, every sector of industry, large companies, small companies, um, and uh, sometimes nonprofits. And those people really can help understand the societal impact and the commercial potential of the proposal. Does that put any of these teams at a commercial risk if you're making something, say you're designing a new type of chip, but someone from NVIDIA is reviewing it? So, so we have to be careful about conflicts of interest, uh, and we don't have reviewers review something where they would be viewed as a competitor. Uh, okay. So, so the you know there is there is a um, there's a little bit of a walk to walk when you try to find uh, reviewers that understand the technology and understand the business. Um, oftentimes, understanding a business of chip making, for example. You can you can have people that are related to the business but not directly in it um, tell you if it's going to be commercially impactful, uh, and then count on maybe an academic reviewer to tell you if the technology is really that impactful and that revolutionary. Right, with adjacent, yeah, yeah, adjacent, um, adjacent experience. Right, I, right. I do that too. I have a we have a grant program at Mass Ventures, and I do that with reviewers too. If it's too close, I just put them in an adjacent area because they still have yeah. so much insight. Um, I'm curious, do you get as, do you, do you get too many really great proposals, too few? Do you feel like, oh, I wish I could fund 3,000 a year, or is it hard finding 30 good proposals? So there's, a, there's typically proposals fall into one of three categories, and obviously we would always like to have more of the category number one. And that category really involves finding that energetic, amazingly talented, um, highly qualified team that has a really revolutionary idea that can change the world. That's what NSF and I think other SBIR programs are looking yeah. for. Um, I would say, you know, there's a there's a relatively small percentage that actually fit that category, but it's but it's not insignificant. You know, the top 10% or top 20% of proposals could fall into that category. And you're just like, they're funded. That's easy. Yeah, easy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost a no-brainer. Um, we obviously still have to go through the review process and, and all the steps, the uh, 200 plus steps there are to get a proposal funded. Um, but but that's really obvious to everyone looking at it that this, this is really a great project. Then there's uh, the total other end of the spectrum of proposals that come in that you really can tell that this proposal doesn't have really the level of innovation that is going to be required to meet the criteria, um, or it has no potential impact or benefit to society, or there's really no business to be made there, where it's just somebody wanting to study something for the sake of learning, and then they have no plan to build a business around it. Those right, like it's really into drones or something. That, right. That's right. Yeah, that, that's the bottom, you know, 20%. And that, that middle 60 or 75% is where the challenge is, where, where NSF has a budget they have to spend, uh, and so there's going to be a certain number of them that can be funded. Um, and the, really, when I was there, I was never put in a position where I had to make a decision of which relatively poor projects I should fund because I have too much money. It was always the other way around. It yeah. was which relatively good proposals should I fund because I don't have enough money. So, so usually there are more, more well-qualified proposals to fund than there's money available. Um, and one of the things that I noticed uh, statistically in my portfolio at the time was that the, when we, we would give feedback to anyone that wanted it at the end of the process, and I would encourage people if they've, if they've gone through the process and been declined, 
be sure to ask for the for the feedback because you're entitled to to a phone call or video call with the program director. Even if you win, okay. there's going to be some complaints there and things you can improve yeah, on for sure. That, that's right, and 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 you can get a firsthand understanding of the real deficiencies of the proposal that may not have come through as loud and clear in the reviews um, as when the program director saw the entire thing as a whole. And so take advantage of that. Um, and if you get discouraged by the program director and say, look, the level of innovation just isn't there, take that as a strong hint that don't waste your time submitting the second one because if you're submitting the same project, it's not gonna get more innovative the next time you, you submit it. But also take the hint that if there are some things that seem fixable, um, proposals that are submitted a second time often have a very good, uh, I think have a statistically improved chance uh, of success uh, if they have addressed the weaknesses properly and really still meet that level of innovation and you know, societal impact and commercial. Well, oh, that is a good insight. So it's it, you can and should reapply if you understand what the concerns were about your first one. Yeah, that's right. And, and if you if you really and, and if the and it was still significant, if if it wasn't that you were the innovation wasn't there. If the innovation is not there, don't don't reapply. If it's just not there, right? Yeah. Right. Besides, if it's team, if it's understanding the commercial stuff, I want to squeak in to um, sneak in here too that um, the NSF I-Corps program is amazing, and all like university spinouts and fresh entrepreneurs should should participate and do that. Do the NSF boot camp; um, those are wonderful programs. The hundred phone it's, calls, it's, the I, I, can't, stuff. I can't reinforce that enough. I hundred percent agree with that, and. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's probably, I don't know the numbers, but there's probably a statistically significant uh, improvement in your odds of getting a phase one SBIR if you've been through I-Core. Oh, for sure. I so wish I had done it back in the day, or there was such a thing back in the day. I so, yeah. so, so wish I had done it. We're going to wrap up pretty soon. I have two more questions for you. One is, why does it take too long? And the second one's going to be sort of final tips. So let's start with one question. <laughs> People ask me, I I. I support teams, you know, um, going for SBIRs. Um, I do always recommend that they write it themselves, which is a different topic for a different day, but why well, address in a different video, but they say, why does it take so long? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, wherever. Everybody asked that. Um, in uh, 2019, we went through, uh, the NSF made a, some changes in the program to try to address that. Um, in 2020, we all know what happened with the global mm -hmm. pandemic. Those two things, um, I wouldn't say they clashed, but the, the pandemic uh, minimized the effect of some of the changes that we made in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, the changes were things like having to submit a, um, to submit a, um, a sort of a white paper. Yeah, to, the pitch. Uh, yeah, the pitch. The, the pitch was designed to get entrepreneurs to be introduced to the program director, um, to the program, and to give program directors a mechanism to filter out those, the bottom 5% or bottom 10% that absolutely do not meet the criteria. That, I shouldn't say they don't meet the criteria. The, the pitch is not evaluated against the criteria. The pitch is designed to see, do you meet the minimum qualifications of applying to the program? Right, like and, you can't be an ice cream shop, right? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, there's just no innovation or there's no, there's no commercial business uh, potential. Um, so, and as part of that process, we used to have uh, two cycles per year where you would uh, have to submit on a certain date. And if you missed that date by one day, you had to wait six months before you could submit again. Uh, and then all the proposals that came in on that date were handled in a giant batch. 
entire SDIR pool of program directors, which was, you know, as a, a more than a dozen program directors would all, they would split up the proposals by topic and subtopic. They would go out and get reviewers. They would all, you know, I would have 200 phase one proposals to run all essentially simultaneously through a process. And uh, it, it is, can be helpful when you're doing the reviews because you can cluster a lot of them together because they're very similar. But it also takes a lot of time to, to just go down that list and make sure they're all progressing. The new program, they, they uh, took away those two hard deadlines and they made a more of a rolling deadline. They still do have some dates that they're wanting to submit by, but those are quarterly now instead of semi-annually. And by having a rolling deadline, it enabled program directors to bring in, you know, once I got three or four proposals of a similar topic, I would hold a little mini panel and I would get reviewers um, to just review those three or four proposals over Zoom and, and I could provide quick feedback and we were able to get proposals run through the process. One of the other program directors and I had a competition uh, where we would see who could get the proposal through fastest. And he won because he was more efficient even than I was. And we, we were able to get proposals funded in like under 60 days. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the amount of workload and the circumstances didn't allow that to really be sustainable for every proposal. And once the pandemic hit, the number of proposals that was coming in really escalated, I think, pretty steeply for a lot of program directors and a lot of topics. And so, so you know, I think that's the, the reviewers can sometimes slow the process a little bit if they don't get reviews submitted back on time, but we're, we're pretty good at chasing them down. We have program support specialists that, that could chase them down to try to remind them to get the reviews in. Um, but like I said before, there are literally 200 steps uh, or more to get a process from the time uh, oh, no. the pitch is, comes in for the time that a proposal is, is funded. And so getting through those 200 steps takes actual real clock time. Uh, yeah, you were so, telling me you had a check, you had an Excel spreadsheet um, before we started recording this and you just went through it, the 200 steps, making sure that you checked every box for every team. So that's it, right. the point, I guess, to distill it, it's a heavy workload at yeah. NSF. It's not like you're overstaffed there. Um, yeah. The pandemic yeah. made it much harder. You were also saying that you had, like, you know, a venture capital firm might have 15, 20 companies they're looking over. That's a good sized one firm. You got you had 135. So you had other companies you were clocking into as well. Yeah. I, well, I was onboarding new companies. So it's it's just a very heavy workload. Yeah. I had 135 companies in my portfolio that had been funded. And so oh, wow. it took, it took uh, you know, two or 300 companies per year to evaluate to get to that point. Wow. 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 Well, that's wonderful insight, Rick. This has been incredibly um, instructive. I can't thank you enough, especially because you're super, super busy still running a company. Um, what are some final tips, some takeaways that people should consider, in particular when they're writing a proposal? I think the, the important thing when you're writing a proposal is to not shy away from the unknowns. It's okay to not have all the questions answered, especially from the technical perspective. Um, technical risk is what the program is meant to fund and to be risk. But also, uh, do your homework before you write the proposal. And the i is a great way to step into this, but do some customer discovery, market evaluation, talk to customers, learn what problems you're solving. Because if you're not solving a problem in an easily accessible way for a customer, they're going to have a hard time adopting your solution. And the, and the proposal reviewers and the program directors will pick up on that and say, yeah, this is great, but there's no way you're going to commercialize it. There's no market or there's too big a market barrier to entry. So really focus on 
um, you know, that the level of technical risk and understanding the, the needs of the market and the needs of your customers, because in the end, societal benefits um, can, can be had in many different ways. And having a, a billion dollar company that creates, you know, 3000 jobs um, is societally beneficial, right? Uh, and as is having a small company that creates a widget on a bus stop to, for a blind person to know exactly what spot to go to to wait for the bus so the bus doesn't miss them. That's a real example of a company we funded. Uh, and so there are a lot of ways to have societal impact, but you have to have that technical innovation and you have to have the understanding of your customers and their pain points to fit into it. And that's always the equipoise with a startup. It's that it's that tomorrow problem that you're solving. You're solving a tomorrow problem, but your customers have problems today. That's right. So it's getting that match. We do have a video in this commercialization accelerator. I'll just put a slight plug in. We do, and for anyone watching on um, product market fit, where we sort of get into some of that and also um, the uh, business model canvas and, and exercises that people can do. Um, I think we also want to emphasize, I, I, I asked you this earlier, that when people can, they should also tie it, tie their research. If, if it was previously funded work by NSF, the university, share that program number. Don't make them, don't make you guys look it up, you know, but show that, that Congress or, you know, the U.S. government likes to see that the money is spent well. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the provenance and the, and the history of having a, a project that started as a, as a small program in an academic lab somewhere and some, the university maybe created some IP um, and, and that um, became relevant five years later in the market where it was really, you know, it was a tomorrow problem and tomorrow was starting to creep up on us and is almost today. And a professor or the postdoc or another entrepreneur came in to license the technology and roll it out. Brag about that in the proposal and, and exactly don't hide it. Talk about that history. It's really important and relevant. Mention it within the first two pages is usually right. my, my advice is because some right. reviewers don't get past two pages. They're like, no. <laughs> yeah. um, great. Well, thank you. I'm look, I'm scanning my notes. Like, did we touch on everything we hope to touch upon today? Um, I think we did. This has been really wonderful. So, yeah, let me let me just make a quick mention on how to really um, get into and understand where you fit in. The best place in the world to get more information is to go to um, seedfunds.nsf.gov. Uh, that that website will give you all the answers because it's a very simple website that uh, was all designed in house by by our communications staff that did a great job. Um, and you can find, for example, the program directors all are responsible for specific topic areas. When I was there, I was responsible for photonics, which included everything from lasers to solar panels, um, semiconductors, Internet of Things, and space. So that's a pretty broad topic range. Um, but each program director's topics and subtopics will be listed on the website. And so you should carefully pick which program director you submit your, your pitch to. Um, if you submit it to the wrong program director, that doesn't disqualify you. They will either tell you to submit it to a different um, program director, or they will just pass it along and say, here, this is this is your topic area. Um, so it's, you won't just get disqualified for submitting it to the wrong director. It just saves a lot of time, and, and program director's time is really valuable. So so help them out and make sure to, to And that usually gets fixed the right in the program. product pitch phase. But I, I do yeah. want to thank you for mentioning that. NSF is my favorite SBIR website. You guys explain everything. You explain the process really well. Um, 
I'm not surprised it was written by communications people, people who are good at explaining things, <laughs> not us scientists. Um, that is a very nice uh, last bit of advice for the person who's new to the SBR process. Rick, can't thank you enough. Thank you, Stacy. I appreciate the time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fundable Founder. Please go to our website at mass-ventures.com for more information on Mass Ventures and where you can also find other episodes just like this.